Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Okay, here we are back at it again. It's so nice to be back in the swing of this. We're sort of also in the swing of everything. It feels like after yes. Labor Day. D- tell me what's the what's the update on? Uh, let's hear from Heyman first. What's the the Heyman household? We're good. Our son turned seven on Saturday, so we're having oh like gosh, ten that. little boys and their families over to our house. There's an eighty percent chance of rain, mm. uh, so we'll see how that goes. And our house is about fifteen hundred square feet, so it might be cozy. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I am definitely feeling anxious about the fall, you know, as we come into a new season, new programs for kids, new programs for adults, wanting to do everything perfectly. So that's that's where I'm at. Uh, everyone else seems happy. All the boys are happy. School's going well. Everyone's healthy right now. So in general, everyone's well. I'm just a little stressed out about the fall. We'll see how it goes. Our anxious RJ. I guess that's... Every day, RJ. But I, I it is. I love, it I, is. Love that. It is. I love that. I love that guy. Moments. I love that RJ. Yeah, I have <laughs> moments of, of of clarity and peace. But generally speaking, yeah, yeah. Kennedy on the outside and Kennedy on the inside. <laughs> Sarah, what's what's happening with you? Oh, just one forgotten lunch after one piano lesson after one thing of laundry after another you know it's it's I'm it's interesting like this time I'm in because I've never not worked and I am a little astonished at a how much they need me right now I feel like it's kind of constant in this age and everyone had said like adolescence middle school you think they need you when they're three, but they really need you then. And that has been like very mm. true. And I've also been surprised at how happy I am in it, like to feel needed and to show up. And, you know, I went to the, the, the theater program at Neil's school needs a parent to sit there for two and a half hours, most nights of the week from four to six thirty, to basically make sure no one makes out in the teacher's lounge, which is such a bummer because that is... <laughs> The first place I made out with people was theater practice in the teacher's lounge. But now I'm in charge of preventing that. And it's just Do they, the do they have any idea like, of the force I, they've unleashed here? <laughs> they do not. And I try to like hold it back. Like I'm like, I'm like, don't, you're going to be, you are going to embarrass Neil so much. Like hold it, keep it together. Like the whole time. But also I'm like, I want to do character development. You know, like I just try to like keep it to myself, but Anyway, really, like, it's just a, we're in a really good season. I do want to say, RJ, that, you know, there is, we talk about it all the time, but there is this mystery of like, oh, you're at this church and there's lots of people and it's growing and it's so exciting. And you're literally just as anxious as anyone at any other church, maybe more so because it's like, we have to keep it up. Got to keep it up. Got to keep it up. Yeah. Yeah, That's right. No no break from the law. Well, Sarah, I've heard that it's very difficult to embarrass 13 year old boys, that there's just incredibly, (laughs) embarrassment is something that just never happens to them. Oh my God. Every day when he gets out of the car, I roll down the window and I go, 
Simply the best. <laughs> it's like every morning, and he hates uh, it yeah. and loves I mean, it. My son it. is just like, you're embarrassing me. Everything is about. I mean, yeah. like, who? Who am I embarrassing you with? I, I don't. I'm. Who? There's no one who? In, around. Like we're. Everyone else is also <laughs> deeply self-absorbed right now. They can't even see oh, you. Oh gosh! But I also do remember yeah. acutely my father embarrassing me mm-hmm. at that age. Paul, my dad, no, no way. <laughs> <laughs> Popping in to bring me my lunch with his collar on and be like, hello, hi, David. Oh. <laughs> be like, oh, dad, get out of here. I love it. Well, things, things are trucking along here in at Embered HQ. One no, a thing to note is that we're doing a little regional conference instead of Tyler, Texas this year. We're doing one in Minneapolis, and that's happening at the end of this month, oh, September neat. 27th through 20, sorry, 29th and 30th. And Simeon is flying across the ocean to speak. Cool. And oh, we've got fine. Flame. I don't know if you guys know Flame. He's sort of he's a rapper and an author. He's a, actually a, he's a very serious theologian. And I've met him through fifteen seventeen. And he's going to be speaking. And then we've got Katie Langston speaking, and who's a a friend of Sarah Henley Wilson. It's uh it's shaping up to be a pretty cool event. So anyone who's we'll put the little link in the show notes. But that's been. Yeah, it's been it, it's something to something to look forward to. We got some fun stuff to talk about, and the first one is Joshua Musser Gritter, who is has sort of been writing for the site for a while. He and his wife are both Presbyterian pastors in North Carolina, and he wrote an article that sort of stirred out the pot a little bit called "Why I Love Short Term Mission Trips." Why I love short-term mission trips. And he says that in his seminary, he says, my seminary self would have scoffed at the title of this post. In those days, it was vogue to be as cynical and sarcastic as possible about the short-term mission trip. There was thought to be a magical, manipulative formula to these kinds of trips. Travel to someplace exotic, bonus points for Africa, check. Spend boatloads of church money that would be better spent on your local community, check. Sleep on a cockroach-infested, dirty floor, a church floor, check. Eat nothing, check. Work your youth to the bone, no whining accepted, check. Once you've got them emotionally and psychologically verklempt, throw a little Jesus in their face and get them saved, check. He says, many of the critiques of short-term mission trips are, of course, rooted in truth. Once airfare became a possibility for the public, churches exchanged sending long-term missionaries for the exciting venture of sending their youth in the short term. And of course, history is riddled with horrific examples of how mission has often looked more like a spiritualized form of manifest destiny. Before we move on, because he is writing in favor of short-term mission trips, what is your experience with short-term mission trips? Have you been on many? A couple. A couple, yeah, I mean, again, a great opportunity as an adolescent teenager to make out. So, twelve out of ten. I, I don't know. I, I love his take on this. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about it more. I, as a parent of kids who are like entering into this age, I'm excited for them to do these things. I mean, I've already seen Neil do some small versions of this stuff, and he like comes back, like loving it. I don't know that he comes back. You know, in in our culture, I'm not sure he comes back, like, uh, aggressively on fire Mm -hmm. for the Lord. But he comes back, like, because he's had fun. And I think, I don't know, I wonder if this is something that we've, and and maybe we'll get to this, but have put so much of our own self-loathing on as adults (laughs) that we've, like, you know, already ruined it for kids. And they just go and have a great time. And there's so many spaces that we demand that children have to think 
deeply because we feel bad about our mm. own selves and and we've taken away so much fun. So I, I don't know. What about you, Arch? I did them mainly in my young adult years, like in my 20s. I didn't really do any of my high school years. I did mainly kind of like evangelistic and discipleship style camps in those years. I did a trip to Mexico City in college, which was great. Uh, Jamie and I, it was actually just after we graduated, Jamie and I were newly engaged because we got married young and she spent the entire time trying to hide her engagement ring because she didn't really want to talk about it. And she was sort of freaked out. <laughs> That's the real. <laughs> She's keeping her she, options she open in Mexico over. City. Rolled... There's nothing wrong nothing with that. She, she, she's an introvert, you know, and she's just, she knew. At, at last someone finally saw it and like everyone freaked out and that's like all they could talk about the whole time. But it was great. It was a good trip. And then I did another one, uh, like my mid-20s, to Ethiopia for a couple weeks. That was oh, cool. kind of amazing. Okay. Yeah. And what, what do I think? Yeah, it's good to see the church at work in different contexts, right? And to realize, like, how people are different, but actually how they're also kind of the same, mm. you know? And the needs are the same. And, and the gospel is powerful no matter the context, and to sort of to get out there. And I was even, I was talking to the guy in my church who I love, who's a, on our vestry and a professor at the local college who spent like 15 years in overseas mission work, primarily in Asia. And there's always surprising things. The fact that like there are more opportunities for women in ministry overseas than there are in the States. For oh, example, you know, huh. that, yeah. that even one of them was talking about how 40% of the missionaries in the Southern Baptist Convention are women. You know, who technically right. technically aren't supposed to preach because they're, they're Southern right. Baptists, but uh, right. but they're out there in the mission field doing something, yeah. you know, yeah. and then they yeah. basically just don't tell the truth to their mission boards at home. <laughs> you know, they just, just sort of say what they need to say to get through the day. There was also something really beautiful about trying to preach the gospel in other contexts because it's very clarifying about what is essential and what is not. Mm. Like, what are we actually trying to communicate here and what can we kind of let go of? You know, what is not essential to the message of Jesus? Yeah. So I always think it's interesting to talk to people who've worked in other contexts or to read books about them and to see all the sorts of things that they let go of that they might have said were essential had they just sort of stuck around in their own context. Yeah. You know, for the sake of the gospel. I mean, that's extremely helpful mm-hmm. to know what is yeah. the cultural detritus that we're sort of, or the baggage that we're sort of, yeah. that, that, that you all of a sudden realize, wait a second. That doesn't make sense in a in a culture where they're never indoors, you know. It's like or or where they're only mm-hmm. indoors, you know. It's it's. I mm-hmm. I love uh, short term mission trips. I didn't get to do that many of them, but I know that my my younger brother can, can you know attributes his conversion to a short term mission trip. Wow. And I my wife talks about going to the Dominican Republic and it being one of the most powerful experiences, being in a women's prison and talking to mm. being this sort of you know preppy you know white girl from maryland talking to these women and they're actually i mean there's a cynical way to look at that and there's like a beautiful way to look at like we're actually talking about real things across so many divides and that that thing is really jesus i let a couple you know the the distinction between a service trip and a mission trip is kind of nebulous like we we did a i did a trip of boarding school students right after katrina down to you know the louisiana coast like 20 of us went and the school's papers like all publicized about it which was not a thing they would really do and it was a very powerful experience i came across pictures of that recently and it was just uh, i i don't look back on it i haven't revised the narrative to say we were doing something 
you know, nefarious or sort of naive. It was beautiful. Oh my god! Well, and there no. was some some the, I, the, the 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 like the the male female the the boy girl stuff is fun. Though I was with the leader, yeah. so it wasn't happening for yeah. me. But I was watching the kids come alive in a in a in a way that was yeah. very cool. Yeah, I would also say like in a lot of those situations, and maybe even globally, this is probably true. Like the church is the only one that shows up. So, you know, I mean, I, you know, we were in Katrina, Josh and I met in Katrina. We, you know, I lived at a camp there and I always say about that experience, like that had not been, I mean, the government wasn't doing anything and not been for the church at large, all these denominations coming together, Christians coming together, people, more people would have died. So, you know, I, I do, I actually think there's like something quite serious, you know, when I think about Kate, your wife, who I know really well, who is like lovely and east coast being in a prison talking to these women like who else is talking to them like and kate getting something out of that but also those women getting like that's so incredible to me that's that's cool i mean i i think about it we were when we did the trip to the gulf coast it was we were being hosted by one of those churches where they don't believe in any instrumentation you know, and these were kids mm-hmm. from like a very, mm-hmm. you know, I, snobby or at least a elitist boarding school. They had just gotten and, into like, Oregon. They had, yeah. uh, well, they'd never, most of these kids never heard in Oregon. And they were, they were mm. in one of these churches where I, women weren't wearing head coverings, but it was pretty close to that. And I was just, mm-hmm. and yet a lot of that stuff, they, their minds were being blown. And I've still have ne- had never been exposed to that, that, that level of kind of, some borderline fundamentalism, I think. Anyway, what Josh is interested in talking about in this piece is he talks about it, he, he sort of thinks that these are more important than ever before because the tendency, at least in his, what he would call his sort of more progressive context, he's in PCUSA, went to a seminary in that denomination, is to evaluate the usefulness of a of within the, what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame, which is just a way of talking about sort of a materialistic frame. The imminent frame is opposed to sort of the transcendent frame. Imminent frame is that just that which you can see, touch, taste, and feel. Nothing spiritual about it. He says this, he says, our immersion in the imminent frame causes us to determine the significance of a mission trip by assessing how far our money went, or how many houses we really built, or how much material advantage we really gave a particular community. While these are fair metrics, they miss the kinds of spiritual realities that make these trips so essential. Shouldn't our first metric be whether or not one encounters a invisible and living reality outside of themselves? That is precisely why I love short-term mission trips. He says, I think short-term mission trips are actually more important now than they were 15 years ago. I have found it to be a brilliant interruption to the problems of the world and the havoc that it wreaks on our youngest generation. And he's talking about a sort of a digital generation. Something hopeful and profound happens when adults and teens spend eight days overnight together away from their devices in a different place far from home. I guess you could say in the least that a short-term mission trip is one long extended sleepover. And he mentions, you know, what we mentioned last season about kids not doing sleepovers anymore. Yeah. He says, I've been on these trips enough times to observe just how much the weariness of the world falls off these young people about 48 hours in. Mm. Every evening, our youth continually comment that they, quote, never hung out this way before. Kids beg me to stay out past curfew so they can bang on guitars and belt out old Johnny Cash songs by the fire. On long bus rides and on rooftops and after praise and worship, kids tell me things they wouldn't dare share with me at a youth group. Surprisingly, they share those things with one another, too. I've heard people argue that this can happen at home, but I'm not sure I agree. Or at least I'm not sure it happens to the same extent. 
The most profound thing that happens on these trips, though, is an opening up spiritually. This opening up of persons is something more than an ab reaction. Maybe it's like what Kafka described as an axe breaking up the frozen seas inside us. This opening is what philosopher Hartmut Rosa calls resonance. Resonance is what happens when we encounter something outside of the imminent frame, outside of sort of the world we can taste, touch, and see, and feel. All of us have experienced resonance. The problem is that the imminent frame has given us ample and rehearsed reasons to discount the author of those experiences. Theologically speaking, resonance is when we are caught up, not symbolically or metaphorically, but literally in the alive life of the living God. Resonance sounds something like the conversation I had with a young woman on a mission trip this past summer. Pastor Josh, what is this feeling? I've never felt this before. I don't know where to put this. I don't know what to do with this. She said to me, tears running down her face. He said, you're encountering the living presence of God. Dwell in it. Savor it. Don't run from it. Something like that. Josh, needless to say, there are reasons why people both said, thank you for putting words to this. Josh, I've had an experience of this. And then there are also longer-term missionaries, especially, who say, you know, hey, if you are in a place for two or three years, you've got to see actually the damage that, that sort of a bunch of 15-year-olds can do when they come in for a week and then leave. And there is an, a flip side to this story. And yet, so, so it's, your, it's always the question of who is the mission trip for? Who, <laughs> is it actually for the youth that are going on it, or is it for the community they're coming to serve? I'm not sure that's something that we can answer. I'm not sure it's up to us. I mean, that's like, that's God's work in this. Like, all, all I keep thinking about is uh, Matt Lindemann, who I went to seminary with, who's a fantastic priest, talking about, I think he and his wife, Anna, if I'm remembering this correctly, sorry if I don't, Matt, were maybe with... Peace Corps in South America and that the people that they were living with were like, tell us about this wonderful land called Utah. Because <laughs> they had had all these Mormons come in and they had talked about, you know, like whatever. And I always think about that and like how funny it is, but also like how these Mormons came in earnestly talking about a place that they love, trying to connect with these people. There was probably some building that happening and some food that was made and God willing, like they, they serve that community. And like, it just feels like, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot in raising adolescents. It's just not up to us the way that God works in other people's lives. And so we're, I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm really hesitant to be like, this is always bad or this is always good these days when it comes to spirituality. I used to be really much better at that, but I'm not now, you know? And so I don't, I don't know. Like I just, I also love this ginger Oaks, the wonderful friend of, of the show, but also a dear friend of mine wrote this under the comment, which are under the post, which I love. She said, like CS Lewis said, his first step was to believe in something outside the material world. And I just think that's such a beautiful like thought, mm. like that's all, that's all that's, I don't know if it's asked of us, but that's sort of all that our, our hearts desire, mm. right? Yeah. Something more. I, I'm, I'm, I loved what, read the comments on this post, you know, you find them through, through the, because there's some discussion that I think, but also testimonies and Josh, Josh recounts, he's like, you know, you spend long enough in ministry, you do run into a lot of people who had amazing experiences on 
short-term mission trips. Even if today it feels like, oh, you're just going so you can get the selfie. Remember that there's that famous onion or maybe it was a, some satirical site that said, you know, week-long trip to Africa completely changes woman's profile picture. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I get it. I, you see that. Right. But I also right. see more than that. RJ, what do you think? I think hearing him talk about his high schoolers describe the experiences they have just highlights, again for me, the profound loneliness and like alienation mm. of our culture. You know, I know my son Spencer has done a lot of short-term trips with a church in Houston, with First Presbyterian Church in Houston, and he loves them, you know, and he's not allowed to have his phone the entire week. And he pretty much lives on his phone when he's not there. But I think the relationships he's developed, the the openness, the sense of community, I just think we are so starved for that here. You know, and, yeah. and there's so many studies about that, right? That that teenagers are, are in no hurry to get their driver's license anymore because they don't actually want to go anywhere. Right. They just want to like stay home and right. be on their phones or playing video games or or whatever. The pandemic, where there was such isolation, there's such a need just to get people together. You know, and I think the church has a huge role in that. Like it almost, it almost doesn't matter what you do. Just let's get together in a place of loving, totally. open community where we talk about one or two real things and you don't have to be anything. You can just come as you are and spend time with other people. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing was, it's just so crazy to me that we live in a world now where the idea that like a bunch of young people would raise a ton of money to fly somewhere and be uncomfortable serving other people is a bad thing. You know, yeah. it's like... Okay, is it perfect? No. Are there externalities? Are mistakes made? Of course. But I'm always reminded of that article we read a few years ago about how, Dave, you guys sent it to me again, about how Christians kind of invented charity, how charity like wasn't oh, a thing. Yeah. It just wasn't yeah. a thing, right? This idea that you're supposed to care for people who are poor yeah. and weak and yeah. out of it. and. That, that emperor that was like, who are these Galileans? Yes. Like, not only did they take care of their own poor, but they take care of ours, that was too. That was Julian the Apostate. He did not name so himself good. the Apostate. That was uh, a later designation. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah. Same for me. <laughs> uh, that, that it seems to be a hallmark of like a truly post-Christian society where like there's no recognition that the idea of traveling somewhere else and being uncomfortable for the sake of somebody else is totally a Christian idea to begin with. You know, and like, maybe it's not perfect, but like, who does that? Like, who does, like, right. it's so crazy to me. So anyway. Yeah. I mean, I watched the, there's like always like an alternate spring break thing that the, the sort of a lot of the Christian kids do at UVA that like, the, you know, they, they're having to justify it more and more. And it's like, why, why aren't we having to justify the sort of getting blackout drunk in uh, Cabo? Thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but right. okay. Cabo, try Cancun. These fancy kids going to Cabo to get drunk. Yeah, I also think it really is important for uh, for especially if they're if they're church kids to get exposed to different yeah. types of Christians, you know. And you know, you do hear people who go to go to Africa or they go to a Latin American country, especially a place, you know, that's dealing with a lot more poverty, that's their actual first exposure to 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 serious poverty, and you always hear the same like wow they seem so much happier than we do <laughs> or like i saw a miracle in front of my eyes and somehow there's a trust in god when you have nothing else that's all you trust in and you hear these testimonies and i just i sort of envy it or like maybe my sat score is not the most important thing on the face of the earth maybe there's something beyond this little super intense microcosm that i 
you know, my own, my own paradigm. And maybe these, these, this sort of, this type of Christian that's easy to vilify from afar, you get to know them and like, wait a second, they're also feeding half this city. And like, what, what's, um, I'm not hearing the whole truth about, because all I've heard is their stance on this, that, or the other issue. But let's, I thought it'd be fun to sort of go on a little trip ourselves. You know, forgive me for being hokey, but there was a, Oh my God, please play music. (laughs) A couple of international stories that, you know, we, we don't just highlight the absence of grace. We want to highlight the presence of it. And there was a, there's an amazing story about coming out of Japan about the, the restaurant of mistaken orders. Have you guys heard about this? It was on NPR, highlighted on NPR last month. And Forbes did a long article about it, talking about in Tokyo, there's a restaurant. It's a pop-up restaurant where customers are happy to get bad service. You ask for dumplings, you get miso soup. Whoops. You ordered grilled fish, and maybe you get sushi. Wait a minute. What? It's a regular thing for the waiters and waitresses to mix things up, bring the wrong meal, misunderstand what a customer requests, or actually drink the glass of water they were meant to deliver to some table. So you go thirsty for a bit. This sort of thing gets these workers hired, not fired. Why? Because these servers all have dementia. It isn't a flaw, it's a feature. It's the primary qualification for the job. All this happens at the Restaurant of Mistaken Orders, which has been organized as a recurring pop-up to broaden the public's awareness of dementia. The gentle surprise of the inadvertent human mistakes has become, in a way, the actual product of the restaurant, more than the desired meal itself. Much of the laughter that fills the eatery arises from the pleasant shock of seeing that what you are actually unexpectedly being served is not what you ordered. Sometimes you might even get your coffee with a straw. This is a Japanese television director, Shiro Oguni, created this business to change perceptions about aging and progressive cognitive impairment. The idea for his project occurred to him when he was served a dumpling instead of a burger while visiting a nursing home. At first, he was going to send the dumpling back, but then he realized that he was in a different world with varying levels of functionality, including mistakes that didn't really harm him. Why not just accept what he received as a way of respecting the difficulties the people around him faced as an act of kindness and humility? During one of the first pop-ups, 37% of the orders were mistaken, but afterward, 99% of the customers said they were happy with their meal. At one event, one of the servers absentmindedly sat with her customers. Another asked one diner to take orders from others around the table. None of this faced anyone who came to eat. They know they are coming for something like compassionate and improvisational cabaret. Oguni has said that his project isn't simply about being more understanding and embracing of those who have dementia. He's trying to show how people can be kind to one another, regardless of shortcomings. Now, I just thought this was so incredible. Incredible in the way that it sort of honors people with dementia who are so, you know, it's kind of the last frontier, I think, for a lot of the the aged, especially those, you know, with Alzheimer's and, and whatnot. But also the kind of what's expected of you is to sort of accept what you're given. There's a receptivity that's underlined here and, and a happy receptivity. It kind of like, oh, the surprise, here's here's what I'm receiving. And to know, to sort of, uh, you let down your entitlement, you kind of like relinquish all of this expectation. I don't know. I, I, I found this to be a profoundly gracious movement. And I'd love to, I would attend one of these in a heartbeat. What about you guys? What do you think of this? I just, this is like the 
my favorite thing we've ever talked about. Like, I just love this so much. I mean, I, I, so I keep thinking of my grandmother, my mother's mother, who had very severe dementia. And, um, the last time we had a family reunion in Louisiana, we, you know, gathered everybody together. We got her out of, she was in this incredible facility in the Delta full of farmers wives. So they would all just sit around and talk about crops, which was like incredible. And mom got her out. We, you know, we all went to Louisiana and I was pregnant with Neil. So napping and miserable, newly pregnant. And I was in the bedroom sleeping and my grandmother comes in and first I watch her fold laundry like out of my bag right (laughs) and then and then I watch her leave and she comes back in and it is a carpeted room and the woman has found a broom and she is like sweeping the carpet and I looked up unfortunately and was like because I called her guinea like guinea hens I said guinea what are you doing and she turned around and she goes you hush you need to sleep for that baby And, like, it was such a beautiful moment of her, like, feeling a purpose and feeling included in the family labor that I'll I'll never forget. I'll take it with me the rest of my life. It was also, there was also this great moment, and this cousin does not listen to this, so I'm going to tell the story. This miserable, miserable person I'm related to was there, and my grandmother, she came over to my grandmother and was very, like, the way that old people typically get treated, right, who have memory loss, like, oh, it's so good to see you, Aunt Lois, and how are you, in this kind of desperate tone, and my grandmother was like, oh, I'm fine. You know, how are you? I love you so much. And gave her this hug. I'm fine, darling. My And my the cousin walks around. My grandmother looks at me. She goes, who was that? She was a lot. You know, and it just was this like, there's so much beauty there. And I love that you can intentionally go to this restaurant and experience it. The last thing I'll say is you can also go to church and experience this. <laughs> That's true. For free. So I do want to say that, but I, I love the intentionality behind mm. it. It's so beautiful, too, that it's Japan. It just makes so much sense, which is having such a yeah. crisis of aging, yeah. right? Where the average age in Japan is like 77 or something. Oh. It's crazy. And all these, have you heard these stories of these older people who they don't want to be a burden? And so there's this forest in Japan where old yeah. people would just drive to the forest and just walk off into the forest and die. And there's a hundred, no. yes, there's just hundreds of bodies in this forest of people who are like, I, oh, I have dear. no use anymore. I'm old. There's no one to support oh. me. I have no one left. And I'm just going to wander off into the forest and, it's true. and die. And what an, what an incredible thing. It reminds me of a story I heard a while ago, a woman who, one of her parents, I think it was her mother, was suffering from dementia. And this woman, you know, her strategy was every day she'd wake up, she'd be like, Mom, what day is it? What time is it? What year is it? What's mm. going on? Let's look at the newspaper, like trying to drag her into the present. And her yeah. husband just had fun with her mother and was just like, and they would go off into these own little worlds and tell their own little stories. And wherever her mother wanted to go in her dementia, her husband would go there with her and her mother loved her husband, even though she didn't really know who he was, you know? <laughs> and and like, right. it's like, you know, it's like being with the, a little kid who just wants to play, totally. who just wants to play. Yeah. And like, are you willing, are you willing to play or do you need to have, are you willing to submit to someone else's reality or are you going to insist on your own reality? And mm. uh, man, again, it just, uh, I, I, I'm, 
I'm really wrestling with my perfectionism recently. And this again, just calls into question, like, yeah. what, what are we really doing here? It like, is such what, what is a, uh, about, you know? it is such a, a kind of indictment of perfectionism, this oh, sort of thing, and it, but, but also sort of yeah. an affirmation of like humanity. I think, you know, we're, you know, it's, it's hard not, uh, we, we are always searching for the next marginalized group that we can kind of champion and, and especially sort of use kind of to feel better about ourselves. I, I just, uh, that's a, that is a cynical take, but I see it happening all the time. And yet mm-hmm. the aged, especially those with dementia, they're an enormous population. We're all going to be old if we, if we live that long. And yet I, I always predict that one day we'll look back on the way that we treat older people today and just sort of be horrified. And this I've watched, especially in church, and I wouldn't have access to this outside of church. In my, you know, my parents are yet to reach that age where, you know, where I've watched them care for their parents, but, you know, it's different when it's your own parents. And so church has, and I do watch, there's, there's there's a group of women at our church that meet who are all sort of caregivers for their aging husbands who are impaired in certain ways. And these are the kind of the most saintly women in the church to be honest with you. And I want to sort of learn from them. And I know that they're living in a kind of an alternate reality and I find it to be very beautiful. And in fact, there's actually another lady at our church who's named Mary Kale, who is about her. She's got a book that's coming out called Dementia in the Church, and it's the most wonderful book. It's it's coming out through, I think, Fortress Press is publishing it. It comes out this week. And it's a, there, it's a resource. You know, there's actually not that many resources about how to minister to those with dementia and to their caregivers and and to include them in, in the life of the church in some, you know, way that's not just lip service. And I think this book is, I just want to recommend it to people. I got to blurb it and it was like, a, I, I, I thought, oh, I, you know, I, I really respect what Mary has to say. I'll, I'll, I'll take a look at it. But then sort of like my jaws on the floor by the end of the first chapter and thinking, holy smokes. So yeah, I think the gospel comes alive in these situations. And so that's one, that's one of our destinations, Japan. The next one, let's go to India. I was gobsmacked by an obit in The Economist for a man named Bindeshwar Patak, who he was, it's called Cleanliness and Godliness. And Listen to this. At age seven, he just died August 15th at the age of 80. Age seven, Bindeshwar Patak wondered why the thin little woman who came through the back door sometimes selling bamboo utensils to his family was called untouchable. He wondered why his grandmother sprinkled holy Ganga water over the floor where the woman had walked and was told she had polluted it. So one day he dared to touch her sari to see what would happen to his body. Nothing happened to it, but uproar broke out in the house. The local Hindu priest said Bindeshwar must be banished. His mother intervened to save him from that, but the rest of the priest's remedy was almost as terrible. He had to plunge into cold Ganga water and, much worse, drink a mixture of milk, ghee, curd, cow urine, and cow dung to purify himself. Later, he learned the reason for it. The poor, creeping woman belonged to the Valmiki community, the lowest caste. Its women mostly made a living by collecting night soil, a.k.a., you know, human waste, cleaning it out from buckets and dry pit toilets with a metal brush and pan, but often with bare hands. For this work, they were shunned even after they had bathed. They could not use the wells unless some clean, quote-unquote, clean soul drew water for them. Now, if we're not in 
the first century the Bible. Jesus. If we're not in it the is Bible so, right It's so Jesus-centric, I can't get over this. Yeah. He says, shopkeepers threw them the goods they bought and shook water over their money. It was fine to touch a dog, but not these human beings who were exactly like him. From 1950, the notion of, quote, untouchable was banned in India, but it continued because their work did. Because most Indians, if they had toilets in their houses, had pits that needed clinging. So began Bindishwar's obsession with sanitation, which soon became a mission. If Indians had proper flush toilets, he reckoned, they could clean them themselves. And if the scavengers were not needed, they could, with training and support, find other jobs and lead dignified lives. The key to everything was Bindishwar's cheap, poor flush toilet, which he designed in 1969. In 1973, a local town in Bihar ordered two demonstration models for the municipal compound. By 2020, 110 million had been installed across the country. Bindeshwar is basically Jesus in this parable. I know it's all about toilets, but gosh, he's they write about shortly after university, Bindeshwar spent three months among scavengers in the town of Betia, enduring with them the stench, the humiliation, and the filth that had leaked into his hair. One day he saw a small boy killed by a bull because since he was untouchable, no one would help him. This redoubled his determination to make his mission national, though few listened. His family were appalled by his peculiar, shameful obsession with sanitation. His father-in-law disowned him. He ran out of funds to build the toilets and had to sell his wife's ornaments to keep going. But as his invention spread, so the scavengers began to rise. He established centers for the women where, in identical blue, pale blue saris, they could learn to read, write, and open bank accounts. They could train as embroiderers and candle makers. By this year, by his estimate, some 200,000 women had been liberated. You know, we talk about the woman, the unclean woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Here you have the little boy touching the hem of the unclean woman, the untouchable woman. This obit which he just died, it just brought home the radicality of grace and service in just a, I don't know, a visceral way to me sitting here in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2023. What an incredible thing. That's what he's done. So anyway, what, what do you think about this? India has always been top of my list to go to for a mission trip or just basically for a culinary trip. Yeah. But Wow. I think also just the, the the cost, the personal cost that he bore, the relational cost. His and, and you, you just wonder what you know, what was it that inspired him to keep going? Mm-hmm. To say it, this is this is worth it. This is important. This is my life's work. He must have been a pretty, um, you know, obstinate, you know, uh, determined, bullheaded, you know, guy. I, I sort of wonder what his relationship with his wife was like after his her, his father-in-law disowned him, you know, but he was he was just willing to keep there to is keep a dimension uh, RJ in it that sort of you can read between the lines of the obit. He sounded so singularly focused on his mission that his family sometimes felt it was more important to him than they were. And yes, uh, I, yes, I, I, I yeah. think sure some, that's true. Some Chris, sure that, Christian yeah. workers out there might might have heard that same refrain before, but that's right. When he had to sell her jewelry to keep making toilets, I, I just, <laughs> I can't imagine how that went over. That would not go over well. I'd be like, I should have married that boy from high school. I knew it. Yeah. The but, boy you met on the mission yeah, trip, okay. right? Right, right. I, so a thing I've been thinking about a lot recently, you know, when I'm out in the world and 
people find out, you know, what I have done for a living, what Josh currently does for a living. We're in a season where there's a lot of that. You know, I'll meet people with kids. And, and it's the weird thing about being in ministry. It's like when you tell people what you do for a living, they immediately are going to self-justify in one way or other. Hmm. Right. They're either going to be like, this is a church I go to. Or they're going to be like, <laughs> they're going to say this. They're going to say, you know, we just don't really like do the whole God thing. Like the... we don't do the God. And and I'm, and they'll often say like, we don't do the God thing with our kids. Mm. And it's heartbreaking for me because this story is in so many ways about a child's innate spiritual curiosity, mm. right? That's what this story is about is like this little boy who grew up in a religious context and wanted to ask questions and push boundaries in the context of his faith. And that is the natural bent of children. And it is so good for them and so healthy for them. And I going to take flack. Maybe I don't even care what their religion is. I just think children have this innate, beautiful sense of spirituality and it is what led him into this, right? And and we should totally embrace it and encourage it. So I, I mean, for me, that's what I see when I see this. And I just, I, I love it. I, I, it's incredible. Mm. It's like, inspiring, right? I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, I feel like it's just the hand of God, mm-hmm. like a singular focus that makes you like, Ang- your family is angry with you. Your community, like, right, is rejecting you. Like, and you just keep at it. And I, you know, it's it's so funny to me, just from an American perspective, given what we were talking about with mission trips and stuff, you know, there's such a, like, being Jesus in the world and being the hands and feet of Jesus and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, no one is embodying that more than this. <laughs> guy did like this isn't you know like because you said the thing about like yeah it's about toilets but all I can think about is like when Christ like spit in the mud and like wiped it you know I mean that's what this is like and it, yeah, like in so, our context sometimes we have to we have to find metaphors or just fresh imagery translation for sort of clean and unclean you know sure here you don't it's just like no, no. this is and you think you think that's 2000 years ago no it's happening and yes it happens with the clean and the unclean on social media and it happens with sure. various sort of elitist you know hierarchies that we create but here it's happening like if you actually touch that person you get banished as a 7 year old i mean that's yeah. that's the level of when jesus touches the man with leprosy he touches the and contracts, and it talks about him actually living among the people. This sort of talk about incarnational ministry, right? right. <laughs> How's right. your incarnational ministry going? Right. You know, he can't get the stink of you know feces out of his hair. That's yeah. uh, to me. I just I I I, I wonder, it wonder awe and gratitude, and all of a sudden, you know, there was a. There's a there's a show that I think is really remarkable that's been on HBO this year called it's been it's actually the third season just concluded it's not for everyone it does get pretty gross called How to with John Wilson and it's a guy in New York who just goes around with found footage that he's been filming for years and he sort of just explores the human condition and there's one about how to find a pus- public bathroom that is disgusting and yet also deals with the reality of human need and mm. bodily fluids and stuff like that but what he finds is he discovers the sort of humanity underneath but you know, this is also where humanity actually lives. <laughs> and it, we can sanitize all we want, or we can 
you know, deal with people as they actually are, which often, t- which sometimes yeah. does involve things like this. But speaking of things like this, RJ, what are you thinking about? Oh yeah, bathrooms, uh, dementia, you know, death. Like this is this is the reality of of life that we remember uh, when just part- Sarah. Didn't you say that you the number one thing people think about when they come to a church is if the bathrooms are open. Bathroom. Totally. It's yes. Where are the bathrooms? How do we get yes. to the bathrooms? Yes. yes. And do you have a changing station? What am I going to do with my screaming child? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's the, those are Plotting the, an exit yeah. strategy. I've interrupted you twice yeah. though, RJ. What were you saying? No, no, I, I don't have much more to say than that. These are incredible stories of grace in the midst of life's messy, beautiful <laughs> realities, you know, and very in, in uncomfortable and challenging ways. So... Nothing well, more to say. let's go from grace back to the law. And to do that, we need to go back to America and specifically to the upper middle class. Ever heard of it? There is a wonderful new book out that I highly, another recommendation by a woman named Jennifer Brennahy Wallace. She's written a book called Never Enough. And the subtitle is Oh, I'm reading when achievement this. culture becomes toxic and what we can do about it. I'm going to try to get her to speak in New York. It's so good. With- this is the moment when all our listeners realize I really don't read the articles. <laughs> I don't even look at them. Well, I heard just, her on yeah. a podcast good. and then I've just been, I bought the book and, and it's really interesting. So there's a lot here and a lot to talk about. She was interviewed by the Harvard Gazette by Samantha Lane Purfus about this book. And, you know, it's it's a book that you sort of have to sell for compassion for high-achieving kids because it's not uh, immediately what we normally want to talk about, you know, scavengers in India. But here we are back at, she says, your, the interviewer says, your book highlights the pressures that students face when they attend so-called high-achieving schools, ones that tend to be very competitive with high standardized test scores. Why did you decide to focus on this demographic? Now, Brennan Wallace says this, as you point out, yes, many of these students come from the top 25% of household incomes. We're talking about upper middle class families. And yet in 2019, two national policy reports found that these students to be officially an at-risk group, I think right behind Mm. children with incarcerated parents and children in foster care homes. Meaning they were two to six times more likely to suffer from clinical levels of anxiety, depression, substance abuse disorder than the average American teen. It felt so counterintuitive that kids who are given so many opportunities would be doing less well, intangible measures of well-being, than their middle-class peers. And what is happening to these kids is happening all throughout the country. Now, I'm not saying that resources should be diverted from other demographics to address the issues, but I think it's important to remember that pain and empathy are not zero-sum. In the podcast, she says, a child in pain is a child in pain. Then she goes on to say, when I was growing up in the early, in the 70s and early 80s, life was generally more affordable in every way. Housing, higher education, healthcare, even food. My parents could be relatively assured, as generations were in the past, that even with some wrong moves, I could replicate my childhood, if not do better. But today's parents face a different reality. We are now seeing the first generation that's not doing as well as their parents did. They're saddled with debt. They can't afford real estate. Healthcare bills are bankrupting people. So she she basically was tired of the narrative that, and frankly, I I, I find myself guilty of that it, that teen anxiety in these households is driven by parental ambition and just wanting to have the right logo on the back of the car. I still think status is a huge part of this, but she's saying that there are also macroeconomic trends, and I, as a parent of teens now, I would say. Yes, <laughs> there are huge macroeconomic trends. She says, parents are sensing fewer and fewer guarantees for our kids, so we feel tasked with weaving individualized safety nets for our children. 
While it's always been the job of parents to raise the next generation, it's never felt so fraught. Now get this. She says, I asked parents how much they agreed or disagreed with this statement. I feel responsible for my children's achievement and success. 75% of parents said they somewhat or strongly agreed. And then I asked how much they agreed with this statement. Others think that my children's academic success is a reflection of my parenting. 83% of parents either strongly or somewhat agreed with that statement. Finally, the last statement, she says, I wish today's childhood was less stressful for my kids. 87% of parents agreed or strongly agreed. She's saying parents are believing that a brand name college will be a life vest that will help their kids despite whatever comes their way in the future. But unfortunately, that very life vest is becoming a lead vest and drowning many of the kids we're trying to protect. Now, I'm going to read more of what she says, but before I do, let's talk. RJ, I know you've, your, your, your kids are further along in this. I, I happen to, you know, I've, I've been working with students at UVA for years and I've, I've this is very, very real. I talked, I've, I, I, part of my workout group, I have a lot of teachers that, that sort of observe this firsthand. This teen adolescent mental health crisis we've talked about in every conceivable way, but here's a new way. What do you guys think about this? Yeah, I'm so curious, RJ, to hear from you because I know that your boys, I think they both went to a pretty high performing school in Houston, right? For high school? No, one of them did. One of them did, yeah. yeah. And I, so I, I did think of you. Actually, I just want to say I thought of you guys a lot when I was reading this book because Jamie is like this, like she has this line that I think of all the time in parenting with like homework coming up and everything. And it's a quote from you, but so I may misquote it, but basically Jamie would say something like, you need to handle your work. You don't want me to have to step in and handle your work for you. Oh, yeah. And what's really interesting, I mean, I, I ha, I'm not, I'm a couple chapters into this book, but for me, one like takeaway feels like is, is your child's success replacing your real relationship with them? And I feel like that kind of way in that Jamie had with your boys is very much a way. I mean, yeah, it's a way to be like, get your work done, but it's also a way to be like, I am not going to be this like hammering like life coach, I'm going to be your mom, Yeah, you know? And, and there's something about that for these kids. That's like really life giving. I mean, she does talk about like this thing of, you know, your kid comes home from school and you're the first question out of your mouth. Isn't like, how are you? How was your day? That kind of thing. But it is like, but how did you do on that? Yeah. How are your grades? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's right. I think our approach with our kids has always been like, yeah, if it gets your work done, if your grades are good, we'll let you do whatever you want. You know, like we'll, yeah. we'll try to give you as much freedom as we can. It is interesting. I was just talking with a dad down here who they're happy down here in Florida, but they're considering moving back to the Northeast where they used to live. And part of that has nothing to do with their happiness. It actually has to do with our where are our kids going to go to high school and are the high schools down here good enough? And do we need to move back to the Northeast where the high schools are better so they can get into better colleges? And I was just like, that makes me so I know I was like, you may want to, you may want to think about that's a big step to take, you know, and, and is that really what you want? He's like, no, he's like, we moved down here for, to escape that. And now we're like, maybe we need to go back into it. Mm. And I do feel like my kids, they had somewhat different high school experiences because he has one of them went to a very much of kind of a high achieving meat grinder high school, you know, and he's, you know, he's in one of like the top 
five engineering programs in the country for college and also doing computer science. And he's still like, dad, high school is 10 times harder than this. Yeah. You know, which is just like, what? Like, what is the point of that? Yeah. It's insane. Like, what are you? They all said that at Rice. What are you trying to accomplish? Them. You know? Yeah. yeah. And then the other one who's at Rice, my, my freshman, went to a high school here in Florida, which is a great high school, but they don't have APs. They don't do mm-hmm. IB. They do have mm-hmm. kind of different tracks for kids who want to pursue higher level math or higher level history, whatever. Mm-hmm. But they're much more student focused, longer class periods, less homework, 15 mm-hmm. minutes in between classes rather than five. So you're not rushing. Oh, and we so really nice. liked it. But I've also heard parents there complain that they're not achievement driven enough and not, you know, score driven enough. So I don't know. And our kids, you know, they do deal with things like anxiety you know, and, and depression, sure. and which that's also part of growing up. You know, I worry about my senior. There's no, no time that's more anxious. Well, there's lots of anxious times, but graduating from college and being like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Mm. I don't know what the answer is. You guys, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bad, it just feels like a battlefield. Get engaged and, um, and go on a mission trip. Sorry. Maybe just, just move. <laughs> just, I mean, I do, there's all these articles now, you know, like he left his job and bought a home in Portugal for a hundred thousand dollars. And now he makes travel videos for a living. It's like, well, maybe that's the answer. Maybe the answer is to pull the ripcord and get the hell out. But, I, but probably life in Portugal is not easier than life in America. Mm. But maybe. I just think relationships are always the answer. Like, I always sound- that's answer. frankly what she says to Sarah. And, you know, if, in case we needed yet another, you know, this is all interrelated. And the fact that the, the lack, the, the church decline is kind of, it's a factor here, especially when it comes to relationships and, and hope. She says this. She says, the number one intervention for any child in distress is to make sure that their primary caregivers are okay. And adult resilience, though, rests fundamentally on their relationships. And the only way we're going to nurture adult relationships, and therefore kids' resilience, is by nurturing relationships outside of the home for the benefit of the people within the home. When I was a young mother, she says, I really thought my role was to be as perfect as I could be. And what I've realized instead is that my kids are served better, less by trying to be perfect and more by just trying to be that steady presence. So she talks about the importance of relationships in your community. And, uh, you know, that's really, really important. And then finally, she goes to this. She says, in, to figure out a picture of health, she says, I sought out healthy strivers. These are not kids who've sort of given up, but ones who are sort of doing well, but also achieving. The students who were able to achieve success in healthy ways. And what it boiled down to was that these kids felt a deep sense of mattering. They felt deeply valued for who they were by their family, by their friends, and by their community, separate from their external achievements. The kids who were struggling the most felt like their mattering was contingent on their performance. We call that performancism. That their parents only valued or cared about them when they were performing. Or, for other kids who weren't doing well, they heard those messages from their parents, but they were never expected to add value back to anyone other than themselves. Mattering for her is the key issue, not social media. She closes by saying, for parents, I'd focus on a phrase from Sunia Luthar, the resilience researcher, which is this, minimize criticism, prioritize affection. Find ways to let your kids know that they matter separate from their achievements. And she also says that kids are under so much pressure from every other place in their world. It might have been at one point the parents' job was to make sure they knew that there's a certain standard that this family holds to, you know. But today that 
my god, you sounded just like my dad. Like the whole thing. I was like, oh, okay. She's saying that parents, their primary goal should be to create a safe haven for their kids to fall apart, to be the dumpster, the emotional dumpster that we've talked about, and uh, basically to be the voice of grace, not the law. Full stop. End of story. Done. You know, and I think that's sort of where the church should be too. But I don't know. I the church needs to be that for the, for the parents, yes. So that they so that they can then be that for their kids. I mean, you have you have to feel that at church in order to, you know. I, I have to say, like, I remember when Neil was small and I was like sinking. I did not know how to parent him for a multitude of reasons that were both him and me, and coming to church and just falling apart on the sidewalk with this woman who has raised three remarkable boys. And her just letting me fall apart and letting me say, you know, I really messed up. And like, we need that in our churches, mm-hmm. a, a space to, to really support parents. And, you know, I just, I think, unfortunately, I listen to so much public radio <laughs> and it's kind of like always in the background. And I know that's a problem, but it's soothing to me and it's depressing, depressing narrative. And, you know, I forget that I have, like, an anxious adolescent in my house. And, like, he looked at me the other day because it was, like, one more. Every other sentence is the global warming. And he was like, Mom, this is really bad. I'm really scared. Put on, put on some and Sandra McCracken, please. <laughs> I know. Exactly. Please, lady. And And I just looked at him and I was like, I'm really sorry that the world feels so overwhelming. Like it does, it feels more overwhelming than it did when I was a kid. And I'm really sorry. And he goes, thank you for saying that. And like, you know, I mean, that's the, like the care that they, the tenderness that they need in those moments. They also need me to turn off public radio, but I can't help it. I keep them alive by listening and sending them money. So, you know, it's, it's just, but, but I mean, in all seriousness, like, I mean, last night, my youngest has switched schools in the, you know, at the beginning of school year. And last night we were talking about because she hasn't learned all these skills, right. And she's only in fourth grade, but because she hasn't been there the first two weeks, she feels behind on everything. Mm. And there were so many platitudes and also realities like that I could have offered her. And anytime I got close to them, she just barked, I mean, just screamed at me. And I finally said, do you want me to rub your feet? Mm. And she was like, yeah. And then she was able to really fall apart. And then she was able to talk about, you know, but it really is like you, I have to be in a really good headspace, right? To have that energy to then kind of absorb and be present to them navigating the world. Yeah. Oh no. It's hard. Parenting's hard. It's this age. It's you know, uh, yeah, I, I've just started writing a, or teaching a course at church called Things You Won't Hear Anywhere Else But Church. And of course, you know, it's certain, hopefully you might not hear them at church either. But one of the things I say is that uh, I'm trying to distill Christian wisdom into sort of fresh aphorisms. And the first one is to advertise your hypocrisy. The church should be a place where mm. no one's expected to be consistent or <laughs> that you have done those things which you ought not to have done. And you've left them. <laughs> And uh, so I, I wrote a post about it for this. I'm going to process it on the website. It's been really good because it's sort of helped me get through some writer's block. But I, 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 I am a hypocrite because I also have been dealing with a 13-year-old who wants to do travel sports. And then all of a sudden he's trying out for these travel sports and he's, he's, you know, whether, he's up against kids who've been doing nothing but 
every single athletic oh. thing since they were six. And yeah. I was I was this yeah. guy being like, oh, you know, I, I care about other things, not achievement. And, and all of a sudden I'm watching him sort of suffer for that reason, but I also feel totally crammed into this thing. And all of a sudden I'm going from teaching this course at church about advertising your hypocrisy to literally driving to a travel baseball thing at 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning to sit there bored out of my gourd and and baseball is the worst yeah i mean i i love i love i love the mythology of baseball however i just thought to myself i feel caught in this and i i'm 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 encouraged by what she's saying but i'm also it's these forces are larger than we are Uh, rj tell us a little more before we hear from melina smith give us wisdom well we talk about hypocrisy. It reminded me of what my associate, DJ Griffin, likes to say. He says, well, you know, when people say the church is full of hypocrites, you say, no, it's not. There's room for plenty more. You know, which, <laughs> Come on in. <laughs> Come on we in. Got, we got right. room for another. It was funny that this article came up because it was the same week that, Sarah, you'd sent me a, a devotional. There's a new devotional coming out from 1517, our friends over there, called Encouragement for Motherhood. And it's, I think it's edited by Katie Copland, who's a podcaster over there. Mm-hmm. It's going to be great. I think it won't be out till next year. but It's next spring. In, in the so, spring. Right. And we'll, we'll make sure yeah, we, we post a link mm-hmm. to it when it's out. But our friend and you know uh, co-conspirator, Melina Smith, uh, wrote a wonderful devotion for it because you know this this sort of never enough fear about our children their value their future and our own value as parents it 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 it's not just parents who feel this way. It's it's anyone who's thinking about the future in, in a sort of a meritocratic meat grinder or just simply a human being struggling with how to be to justify themselves to feel like they're enough. She wrote a um a little devotion called Finding Peace, and she's uh, taking as her text uh, Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Melina begins by saying she was at a conference, and she's speaking about sparking faith through the imagination, and she's sort of going through her wonderful stuff that she does with story makers. You know, if you, you don't know what that is, check it out. It's amazing sort of resources for children's ministry. And she was asked, people were, parents were asking various questions of her. And then one, finally, one mother asked in a quivering voice, but how do we parents make sure our children are Christians in the end? Melina says, the mother cut right to the heart of the matter. Sure, I had plenty of fun, crafty hacks and tricks of the trade. But the real question, the big question, sat in the room like a ton of bricks. She asked the question that all parents think about, worry about, and are most afraid of. We worry because we imagine that we are responsible, not only for packed lunch, but for their salvation. Mm. As soon as the words left her mouth, my mind could only think of two things, my daughter Sophia and baptism. That same question was brought to a church in 2007 where a young woman of 28 years of age held a three-month-old infant in a vintage baptismal gown, a hipster gifted me, she's talking about herself, from a flea market (laughs) in Chelsea. I remember looking down at Sophia and her vulnerability was piercingly real. There were so many mixed emotions at play. I felt overwhelmingly grateful and terrified all at once. The service began and we reached the baptism. And then a rush of, of words of peace washed over me, and I was given a moment of reprieve, a window into God's promises. The words the priest proclaimed hit my very core. Christ claims you for his own. Claims. There seems to be no choice in that statement. We've been chosen, selected, adopted. 
We have brought these children to baptism, knowing that Jesus died and rose again for them, and trusting in the promise that God hears and answers prayer. These promises washed over me, the mother, even though it was a day for Sophia, it was for me too. It reminded me that I once was a tiny baby in the arms of a priest who proclaimed God's promises over me. So when I looked at the mother asking the real question at the conference, I uttered instinctively, Holy Spirit in action. All I know is that God pursued me relentlessly without ceasing. So why wouldn't he pursue our children too? When we think of our children, why are we afraid that God won't pursue or love them the same way he does us grown-ups? Perhaps we can lay the burden of salvation down and trust in the God who relentlessly pursues his children. No matter what your little ones or teens are up to, we can trust that just as God sought you out, he has claimed them too. Sarah, you sent this to, 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 to me. What was going through your mind? Um, you know, I love this so much. And I keep thinking about a piece that, that Stephanie Phillips wrote recently about her son who has autism and the challenges that come with that and the fear as a parent raising a kid that is so dependent on you that will you always be there for this mm. kid? And I actually think it's a, it's a, there's a similar thing there that's happening, right? It's like this, this anxious desire for control mm. over something we don't have any control over. And, and, and Stephanie's conclusion, which I feel like is, is really in the direction of Melina's is like, you know, God loves this child more than, than I do. God cares for this child more than I care for this child. And so, you know, God, and I've heard Melina say this before when people have voiced concerns about, you know, kids and Christianity, like God's not done with them yet, yeah. you know? And I, I think that phrase a lot, and I'm sure you all have encountered this where, you know, you encounter people at your church who are maybe like your parents' generation and they worry about their kids who are more our age who, you know, don't go to church, don't have that community, you know, are struggling with belief. And often for those parents, there's this pain, like, what did I do wrong? Mm. I often see it as like, I pushed it too hard and they've rejected it now. Right. And that's, you know, and that's my fault. And, you know, I mean, the good news about our fault is that it all lands on the shoulders of Jesus. And the worst thing we can do is like live our lives out through the anxiety of our faults. Cause in some ways, <laughs> right. We're not really Christian in that moment either. And to have some peace about it. I, I, I think there's something really beautiful in just saying like, God's not done with your mm. kid yet, you know? And so you, you, you need to kind of step back and trust that. And that's hard. I mean, I have one kid right now who feels very much, you know, like spiritually curious and invested in the church. And then I have another kid who's like, oh my God, this shit again, a little bit, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, I mean, my favorite thing that this child says is, I've heard all of this already. Why am I having to hear it again? And it's funny when Melina visited us, she asked this child a biblical question and the kid actually knows all this stuff because we've done story makers. So it was like, I was like, well, they didn't. I mean, <laughs> nah, you know, I mean, maybe you should stay home, but it's just like, there's just kind of like letting go of the control mm. over that is really hard, but I just think and it's that's, necessary. That's, that's faith, I, I guess. Right. I mean, isn't that what faith is? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's like we don't have any control over, you know, the moment we try to have control over our children's spiritual lives in some really direct, this is the what you have to believe way is the moment it goes south. Right. Like, you my, know. My, my sense is just, always that faith is not opposed to doubt. It's opposed to control, if anything. Like that's the, totally and, and, and faith is also a gift. So it's not like necessarily up to us to summon, but that's where the rubber right. meets the road. RJ, right. why don't you take the, the closing word? What do you, what do you say? As Sarah was talking, I, I was thinking that the thought had occurred to me a number of years ago. I think I was preparing some teaching for some parents or something. How we're only ever surrogate parents to our children, right? We're not. We're not mm-hmm. their true parents. We're just. We have them for a time. We do the best we can. We make a lot of mistakes. But that when we pray, you know, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, He's not just our Father. He's their Father too, in a way that's much more profound than we could ever know. And He. Like you said, Sarah, he knows them better than we could ever possibly know them. He loves them more. He has more control. He actually can change and melt and turn their hearts, which we can't. And the best we can do is, is in a broken way, bear witness to the unconditional love that he has for them and for us and trust him with the rest. You know, And I say this as someone who... Right now, neither one of my sons uh, attends church except when they're home with us. And I'm I'm freaking out a little bit. I'm like, ah, are they going to go to church? Like, what's going to happen? I don't know. But I also feel like that I hope they... They, ha- they know they know who Jesus is. They know what the gospel is. I think, generally speaking, it's a good thing in their minds. Mm. And that at some point, maybe God is going to send someone else in their life, into their life, or send some crisis into their life where they're going to say, you know what, maybe maybe Jesus has yeah. something to offer me. Maybe there's something I can, maybe there's something I could offer him in prayer and, and God's going to answer that prayer. And they're going to be like, oh, he's real. I don't have to do this life alone. I don't have to go it alone. Um, mm. well, that, was, that was me. So... I think. Um, yeah, that was you. That's right, Dave. In the meantime, That's right. I remember. I remember you. Your first folk leaving a focus camp, not really sure if you were a Christian or not. <laughs> <laughs> like you sort of, you kind of became a Christian while leading a youth camp, which is hilarious. No comment. But I would say a, sh- a short-term <laughs> mission trip was involved. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys both. What a wonderful tour of uh, the world, according to uh, the Mockingcast. And we'll talk to you guys in a couple weeks. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.